The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We continue to work our way through the upper room discourse. This is that final time when Jesus would have a final meal, a final supper with his disciples. It's that final set of instructions he was leaving for them and to them. And to sum it all up, he was teaching them how to live life by faith. He wanted them to know what to do when he was gone. He wanted them how to know how to live life with an invisible Savior, which means so much of what he was instructing the disciples to think and to know and to build on then is exactly and perfectly fit for us in our day. You know, everybody loves to be affirmed. I don't know anybody who dislikes affirmation, especially by those we love and those we respect. Think of someone you love and respect, and maybe one time they gave you some affirmation, maybe they gave you some encouragement or a compliment, and how deeply satisfying that was. Well, there's nothing between Galilee and Jerusalem that made the disciples any different than you and me. Imagine the feeling that Peter received. Caesarea Philippi, he brings the disciples around and he says, guys, what's the rumor mill? Who do people say I am? He knew people were talking. He'd done many things, fed thousands, healed the, the lame and the blind and the deaf, raised the dead. You can imagine there was quite a rumor mill going around. He says, what are the, what's the rumor mill? Well, some say you're a resurrected Elijah or resurrected John the Baptist. Then he says, who do you say I am? Peter boldly says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And before he could even finish the sentence, Jesus says, not only are you right, God himself revealed that to you. You've got to think that he was feeling pretty good about himself. Not only did I get the answer right, I, I am now speaking with God speaking through me. He wasn't going to miss that opportunity. You are the son, Christ, the son of the living God. Not long afterwards, though, they would make their way down the Jordan Valley, up from Jericho, up to the temple, and have that final time with Jesus. And Jesus would look Peter in the eye and say, tonight, before the, the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. But before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter was in disbelief. No, I'll die for you. Well, sure enough, he did. We should be encouraged by Peter's example. Great affirmation of Jesus great understanding of theology, great moments of insight, great moments of theological accuracy and affection for Jesus, but also the worst kind of spiritual failure. He actually denied that he even knew who Jesus was. Three times he denied the Lord, and three times Jesus said, do you love me? And three times he affirmed his love for him. That's not coincidental. Years later, the Apostle Peter wrote two letters to the Christians experiencing serious persecution from the church, and in the middle of that, there's a little phrase that I think actually the King James Bible translates better than any translation I've seen. In 1 Peter 2.7, he says simply this, to those who believe, Jesus is precious. To those who believe, Jesus is precious. This might be perhaps the most important insight for experiencing Christ, the resurrected Savior in our own lives today. He is precious. 
the sweetest relationship, the greatest possession, the greatest volume and value in life is Christ. That was born out of thoughts that Jesus gave the disciples, and especially Peter, this night. Remember where we are. He is moments away from getting up and leaving the room and heading toward the Garden of Gethsemane. This will, conversation will continue. You can look at uh, uh, the end of verse four, chapter 14 and see that, get up, let us go from here. He is right at the end of this formal talk and is going to continue talking to them down into the Kidron Valley as he prepares for his arrest. In the middle of that, he's instructing them on how to have value placed solely and firmly in the Savior. This is a confusing time for these men. He's just told them that someone's going to betray him. He's just told them that someone is going to uh, uh, turn them in with him. He's just told them that he was going to leave, that he would, be, would not be back, that they were going to have to live life without him. So they're troubled. That leaves us in verse 18 of chapter 14. We began this last week. We'll finish it off this week. Follow along as I read till verse 24. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, my Father, and, and you in me, and, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will come and love, come, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Maybe the most impactful verse in the last 10 years of my Christian life is in the middle of this passage. I remember reading it dozens, hundreds of times maybe, over and over and over, and it never really had the impact that it had one simple time when I was sitting in my study out in California preparing for a sermon on something else and went to this verse as a cross-reference. It's the little phrase at the end of verse 21 where Jesus says, I will disclose myself to him. Now, my immediate gut reaction was, well, wait a minute, that's, that's talking about experience. I don't want to get near that. This is talking about a post-resurrection experience that the disciples enjoyed. Surely that's all it is. And I, I was intrigued by it, began studying what it meant and came to the conclusion that Jesus means exactly what he says here. That he promises a special kind of, can I say it? Experiential disclosure to those who love him and to those who obey him. Does Jesus, will Jesus really manifest himself today to people on the earth? Well, after his arrest, the disciples must have been asking the same thing. What, what's going on? Where did Jesus go? And what, what many don't uh, recognize is that at least Jesus, at least uh, John, and at least Peter kind of trailed along with the soldiers. They were watching the, the trials play out. They were watching the scourging. They were watching the beatings. 
These were men who just a few hours earlier were sitting arguing with each other about who was going to sit on the right and the left when Jesus marches into the temple tomorrow on Saturday, on Friday rather, and tells everyone, I am now the Messiah. They'd laid palm branches ahead of him just a few days earlier in celebration that the Messiah had come. And who wouldn't think he was the Messiah? I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want a guy for president or Messiah who could heal the sick, feed the hungry, raise the dead? Can you imagine a presidential candidate right now who promised that? I'm not sure we haven't heard that yet, but... <laughs> These were promises that Jesus didn't make. These were facts and acts that he did. Well, we jumped into this passage last week, and we said that we can organize it around five views of the permanent abiding presence of Jesus. Five views of the permanent abiding presence of Jesus. Let's review the first three, and then we'll dive into the last two with more depth. In verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is the comforting promise of Jesus' presence. Jesus promised his presence. The comforting promise of Jesus' presence. I will come, and I won't leave you as orphans. Now, again, you got to put yourself in their togas for a minute, okay? They were very disheartened. Jesus, you're leaving us? You're going to be betrayed? You're you're not coming back? But you're going to come back, but it won't be like it was. Orphans, as I said last week in the ancient Near East, were typically not those who had been abandoned by mother and father, but an orphan, every time it's used in the Bible, is of someone who had been abandoned by the father or the, the father had died and only had the mother. It was, it was a term that meant it was a young person who had no masculine fatherly influence. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. He promises the disciples something that stands true for you and me today, I will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, he says, I will come to you. What does that mean, I will come to you? I think he answers that, as we said in verse 21 at the end. But he makes a promise, you're not going to be alone. I will not leave you as an orphan. Now, there's a practical, not a sentimental, but a very practical, heartfelt footnote here that we all should, should recognize. In our darkest times, in our deepest trials, in our greatest struggles, Jesus promised to never leave us as orphans. No matter how you feel, no matter what you think, you have to depend on what you know, that Jesus has never, nor will he ever, leave a believer in a lurch. Well, secondly, the second view of the permanent abiding presence of Jesus is in verses 19 to 20, the precious privilege of Jesus' presence. After a little while, the world will no longer see me. And that's true. He was going to leave the world, and except for a few post-resurrection um, uh, experiences that he would have with the disciples, and over 500, as 1 Corinthians says, he would leave and the world would think he was just a murdered, executed criminal by the Roman government. But you will see me. You will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Now, is this talking about Jesus after the resurrection? Well, in some dimension, yes. But I think there's something bigger here. He says, you will see me again where I'm going. He already said in the first few, chapters of chapter, first few, first few verses of chapter 13, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Where I go, you can come too. 
That's what he's saying here. You'll see me again. You'll see me by faith in this life and by sight in the next. In that day, verse 20, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And again, this has a double dip um, kind of application. We would know that by, by what, what Revelation teaches us now, but we'll know it experientially in heaven. That great phrase that C.S. Lewis says, first few words, few words out of every believer's life when they get to heaven is, of course. It will make sense then. But now we live life by faith. And isn't it interesting, most of us long would like to live life by sight. Jesus Christ will come. He will be with us. We will know that we're in him. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says that the test of salvation is recognizing that Jesus Christ is in you, is with you, that permanent abiding presence. And third, we drill down into this uh, third view of the permanent abiding presence of Christ, the loving reality of Jesus' presence, the loving reality of Jesus' presence. And we found out that this, this permanent abiding presence that's going to be there, whether we experience or not, is experienced with two conditions, love for Christ and obedience for Christ. Look at the text, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, obeys them, abides in them, is the one who loves me. There's a proof of the love that we have for Christ. Obedience. What we saw in baptism a few minutes ago were six individuals who said, I love Christ, therefore I'm going to obey Christ who commanded us to be baptized. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. This is, this is intentional doublespeak. Jesus is saying, to love me is to love the Father. For me to love you is for the Father to love you. We are one in solidarity. And he says, I will love him and will disclose myself to him. We spent a considerable amount of time on this last week. What does it mean for Jesus to disclose himself to us? Does it mean that he comes in and puts his arm around us in the morning and tells us to fix our hair a little differently? Does it mean that he, he meets with us when we ask, uh, his, uh, or, um, uh, ask the blessing on our meal and he sits down and says, you know, great job, mom, good meal? What does this mean that he'll disclose himself to you? Is it really that he'll, he'll appear on a tortilla or a piece of cheese toast? Is that what he's talking about? No, no, no. This simply means that we will have an awareness in our affections that Jesus abides with us. Remember the quote we read, that long quote from Jonathan Edwards last week? Let me, let me summarize that if it got a little complicated last week. What Edwards was saying is that all of us are created with, with affections, our feelings, our thoughts. He had no difference between head and heart, between thinking and feeling. All of us have these affections, the things we want, the things we want to experience, things we want to avoid, things we want to enjoy, these leanings of our heart, these affections. His point was everything that Jesus is and everything that the Bible describes Jesus to be was exactly and purposefully revealed so as to meet those exact affections. So that everything we long to know is known in Jesus. Everything we long to feel is, feel is felt in Jesus. Everything we long to experience is in the presence of and revelation of Christ. He will disclose himself to us in our affections being met with who he is and his truth. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean we, mean we always feel like Jesus is there? No, we don't always feel that way. 
We don't always even remember that he's there. Does it mean that we're going to have these, these visions and these dreams and the experiences of Christ? No, that's not what it means at all. It means that in the deepest part of who we are, we will long to know and have tastes of Christ. Euphonizo is the word for disclose. It means to manifest, to make known, to give an experience of it means to gaze at Christ's beauties, to gaze at Christ's attributes, to understand his deity, his humanity, his works, his person, and to have an experience with that feeding our minds so that now we turn to love the one we've known. It really comes to, um, to clarity if you want to look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1 Verse 2, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, you got to stop right there. I want grace, I want peace. How in the world can grace and peace be ours and multiplied? Well, grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, manifested to us, disclosed to us everything, everything, Pertaining to life and godliness. Wait, how do we get everything pertaining to life and godliness? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Listen, Christianity is fundamentally rational. It's mental. It's based on what we think and what we know from Scripture. But what we think and what we know from Scripture does leak into the rest of our affections. We can't have this disclosure of Jesus without a love for him and obedience to him. That's what the text says. And we won't love him or obey him without knowing what he's commanded and how lovely he is. Where's the only place we find that? Scripture. You cannot have this disclosure of Christ unless your mind is thoroughly biblical. What we read of Christ in the scriptures is like a booster seat. It lifts us up to see the greater beauties of Christ. We looked at this last week, but there's two conditions there, obedience and love. We have to obey Christ and love Christ. Ephesians 6, 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with, get this, incorruptible love, a love that doesn't diminish. Now, here's the problem with that passage. All of our love diminishes, doesn't it? I mean, don't we love Christ more at certain times than, than other times? Don't we love Christ more because of something than other experiences? Well, the movement of our souls, the movement of our affections is toward that incorruptible love because of God's grace. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful whom, by whom, through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Christ Jesus our Lord. He called us into fellowship, real, live, living fellowship with his son, not just Read the Bible, pray a prayer, sign the card, walk the aisle, put that date in your Bible, and then walk away. No, no. He wants with us what we really want from him, an ongoing, wonderfully informing, mind-informing, soul-comforting relationship and experience with him. All this, by the way, is predicated on Jesus' continual promise, I will come, I will come, I will come. Do you understand the, the, the pre-notion he's giving them of his resurrection? 
They're going to watch him die tomorrow on the cross. Still, he says, I will come, I will come. So many promises are made in these, these chapters where Jesus says, this is going to make sense to you after I'm gone, after I'm dead. True love for Jesus controls all of our affections, our hopes, our desires, our longings, our aspirations, our memories, our thoughts, all controlled by the knowledge of Jesus. Can I be just practical for a second? It could be that the main reason most of us struggle is because we're trying to make our Christianity behavior modification instead of a relationship with a living, risen Savior. Could it be that we're trying just to do better and try harder to be good rather than to seek the face and the presence of Christ through the revelation of the Scriptures? If we obey and if we love, Jesus will manifest himself to us by giving us affections for him, apprehending aspirations for him, seeing his beauty, his excellence, becoming aware of his presence. So much of it is just that, believing that he is here because he is. I was having a conversation with some friends this week and we were talking about the, the unbelievable notion of how many cell phones are in this room right now. And I know what you're thinking. Well, I have a cell phone. No, I'm talking about that. Do you realize, i got to be careful how I say this because I have an AT&T. Um, every, if we have good signal here and good towers, every cell phone signal in America is in this room right now. That's a scary thought. If you don't believe it, just get anyone's cell phone, don't do it right now, and open it up and make a call or try to receive a call. And please turn it on vibrate. Don't receive the call right now. They're in here. Those signals are in here. Do you believe that they're here? Isn't it interesting? It's easier for us to believe in cell phone signals than it is the presence of the living God who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. This gets really wonderfully confusing as we intimated last week. I love the confusion of this because Jesus says, I will come. A few verses earlier, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And in a few verses, he says, the Father's going to come. Acts 16, 7, we see the Spirit of Jesus was with the apostles. In Philippians 1, 9, we find out the provision is made through the Spirit of Jesus. In Matthew 28, 20, he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus promised his presence with us. I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. God promised that he would never leave or forsake us. Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 8 say that. Joshua 1, 5. Hebrews 13, 5. This was ultimately accomplished through the Lord giving us his Holy Spirit, but it's more than that. I want to tell you, this passage has thoroughly enriched my understanding of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I've always had it kind of in my mind that God the Father is ruling the world. God the Son is making intercession at his right hand. Romans 8, right? And then the Holy Spirit, he's the one who's with us here on earth. This passage obliterates that understanding of indwelling. It's not just the Holy Spirit who's with us and not just the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Jesus says, I will come to you. I won't leave you in verse 18. And as we'll see in a minute, in verse 23, the Father's going to come to us as well. You have the permanent abiding residence of the entire Trinity with you. Wonderful, wonderful encouragement. 
So what do we do? How do we experience this disclosure of Jesus? Well, you spend time meditating on Jesus' superlative, excellent perfections, his wonders, his powers, his compassions, his severity, his promises, his interactions, his statements, his descriptions, the theological explanations of him in the epistles, and his glorious second coming in the book of Revelation. The more we think of Jesus, the more we'll experience his permanent abiding presence. That leads us to number four, where we dropped off, left off last week. A fourth view of the permanent abiding presence of Jesus is this, the resolved confusion about Jesus' presence. The resolved confusion about Jesus' presence. This isn't a big point, but it's certainly an important one to the disciples. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him. Now, this is Judas, not the one who's left the room. There was another one named Judas. Luke 16, 6 tells us there were two men named Judas. One was the traitor and one was the son of James. This is the son of James. Judas, the son of James, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? It's interesting that that the, the expectation of Judas, not Iscariot, is revealed here. And I think it was the expectation of the rest of the apostles, the rest of the disciples. Wait a minute. We were coming to Jerusalem. We just walked across the palm branches. We just saw the crowd give you cheers. We just saw you diss the, the, the chief scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and turn over money tables and own the temple and confound their arguments. We just saw all that. We're on your team. And by the way, we know they saw us with you. Now you're going to leave. You're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. So you mean to tell me we're the only ones who are going to know you're the Messiah and the world's not? That's a fair question, isn't it? Wait a minute, time out, Jesus. You, King, throne, me, you, ruling. I, I like that part. Now you're leaving and the world's not going to even know who you were. You can just see Jesus saying, it's, it's going to be worse than you think. They're going to crucify me tomorrow. He zeroes in on the Lord's promise that he will disclose himself to the disciples, but not to the world. Obviously troubling. Jesus said he's going to leave, and the logical conclusion is that the hostility that had been directed toward Jesus would now be directed toward who? For them, to the disciples. Judas wasn't very pleased about this little plan. And if the world didn't know the true identity of the Lord, that would leave them vulnerable and exposed and in danger. So what's the answer to the question? What has happened, Lord? I thought we were on a, on a string of, uh, of triumphs here. This goes back to what we've studied over and over in this passage. How many times did Jesus say, I'm going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They're going to try me, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise three days later. He tells them this in Caesarea. He tells them this in the Jordan Valley. He told them this at Jericho. He told them this on the way up to Jericho. He told them this in the upper room already, and they still don't get it. What's happened? The answer is nothing. They've just misunderstood the plan of the substitutionary atonement of the Son of God. Jesus, Judas asks really the same question here that we intuitively ask. Why doesn't the world get this? 
We understand, Lord, but why do we understand and it's so clear to us and, and the world doesn't? This has got to be a, um, a proof of the incredible deity of Christ and the nature of God and the reality of God because it's so different than any human thought. I mean, if you were the Messiah, if you were God in flesh, would you lay down on a cross and be executed? If you were God in flesh, when the scribes and Pharisees began and the chief priests counsel you all night and ask you questions, would you remain silent? Or would you say, I created you, and I created that, that wart also. I created every part of you. I know you. I created you in your mother's womb. I'm your, your Lord, Savior, your God, your Creator. No, Jesus didn't do any of that. He is so different than us. Why? Because he's obeying his Father's will. Judas, son of James, didn't understand this, but he would in the coming days. The resolved confusion about Jesus' presence is that he is going to rise from the dead and go to heaven and leave us in a very broken and sin-stained world that when it can't get to Jesus, will get to us. Remember in Colossians 1, Paul says, I want to complete that which is lacking in Christ's suffering. Does that mean Jesus didn't suffer enough? No, no. It means they couldn't get to Jesus so they can get to us. And that's the source of their hostility toward God. That brings us to the fifth view in verses 23 and 24 of the permanent abiding presence of Jesus, the conditional experience of Jesus' presence. We've looked at this a little bit already. The conditional experience of Jesus' presence. Jesus answered and said to him, I love this. This is so typical of the Lord. Judas, the son of James, asks him a question, and he says, well, I'm going to answer another one. Why? He didn't get it. He's, he's already answered this question over and over. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode, our living situation, with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now we're looking back to that conditional obedience and love for experiencing Jesus' presence. It's love and obedience, love and obedience. You could do a dissertation on love and obedience in these five chapters. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And if you obey me, it's proof that you love me. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now the word word there is really interesting. We typically want to make that the Bible and certainly by inference, it is the Bible, but the Bible hadn't been finished at this point. So when he says, keep my word, the word word there is, is really bigger than the word word. You will keep my gospel. You'll keep my plan. You'll keep my person. You'll keep what I am and what I've taught you. He specifies it down uh, uh, also and says that the unbeliever won't keep his words he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. That's back into the inner workings of the Trinity. To love Jesus is to be approved by his Father, our Father. And then look at the end of verse 23. This is what I said is just turned my view of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, expanded it, turned it upside down in a sense. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. So let me ask you this. 
God abides with you, right? Right. So is it the Father, or is it the Son, or is it the Holy Spirit? And the answer is letter D, all the above. That's so encouraging. And again, this is kind of twisted my mind. I guess I always knew that I could have access to Christ and have access to the Father because they're in heaven through, through the Spirit. I can have access to them. No, this says they're all with us. The Father makes his, his residence, his abode with us. It's the same word used of the residence that God makes on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. He makes with us. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. Now we get more specific from word to words. The things that Jesus has taught, the gospel and its specificities itself. You know, the, the leading characteristic of an unbeliever is an utter disregard for who Jesus is, what he did, and what he said. And Jesus explained that right here. They won't, they won't listen to my words. If you don't love me, you won't keep my words. Obedience and love go hand in glove. And the word which you hear is not mine, by the way, but the Father's who sent me. Here we find it again, the solidarity. Are we listening to the words of God or the words of Jesus or the words uttered by the Holy Spirit? And the, word, the, the answer is, are you really trying to cut up the Trinity? Back to that idea of indwelling. Verse 16, the Holy Spirit indwells us. Verse 18, the Son indwells with or permanently abides with us. And verse 23, the Father and the Son dwell in us. All three presented as permanent abiding presence presences with us. I was reading one commentator this week who was speaking of the, the Trinity from this passage, and it was, it was really encouraging what he said, because we, I don't even know what verb and what, um, what noun to use. I mean, are you, do when you speak of the Trinity, do you want to say they? But we know God is one, Deuteronomy 6, so is it a he or a they? How do you work that out? And I love the fact that Jesus uses the plural in verse 23. We will come to him. He doesn't get caught up in all the Trinity confusion. He just said, one in three, three in one, deal with it. Live with it. So here are the questions that must be raised from looking at these promises that Jesus made, these views of Jesus' permanent abiding presence. Do you, do I, do we love Jesus? Of all the things that he could have been talking about here at the end, he brings this idea of love. It's, I think it's easier for us to look at being committed to Jesus. What makes us love a person? Knowing about that person. I mean, this is back to third grade Sunday school, right? You will not love him if you do not know him. This isn't a blind date. This is a love relationship we have with a Savior we thoroughly know and who has been thoroughly explained. We love him. Can you just, I'm not going to ask you to do it now. Could you close your eyes, though, and just begin listing off the reasons to love the person of Jesus? Is that an easy meditation for your heart to gravitate to? 
boy, I love him because of this, because of this, because of this now, because of that then, because of experiences that he's brought me through in the present, because of things he did in the scriptures. I can give you reasons I love him. Second question that's raised from this is, do we obey him? Because we can say we love all we want, but if we don't obey, we don't love. I remember uh, hearing uh, one of our kids was very small. Um, some discipline happened in our house. I know that doesn't happen in yours. Mission Road Bible Church people never need to discipline your kids. But in our house, we did. And I heard in the other room, uh, my wife was talking to one of our sons, who will remain nameless now. If you want to know afterwards, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> he was little, and they were in the other room. And um, I, I heard this, you know, the discipline the weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, the reconciliation, the love, the cuddle, I heard it all. And then, then I heard his little voice say, Mom, I love you. And I was expecting to hear, Oh, I love you too. And I would go in and say, Good job, both of you. Now what happened? Mommy, I love you. And then I heard this, I know, but if you love me, you will obey me exactly what the Lord is saying here. Affectionate love without commitment and obedience is no love at all, is it? Do we obey? Will we obey? And listen, friends, you cannot obey if you don't know what he said. It's not just doing good as you can or trying to do what's right. This is way more intricate and wonderfully complicated than that. Do you love him and do you obey him? Let me ask you a third question. Do you, have you experienced his disclosure? I got to admit, the non-charismatic in me almost hates asking that question. I mean, am I really asking if you've experienced the disclosure of Christ? But it's verse 21, right? So how do you know if you have? Because you've known his presence. How do you know if you've known his presence? 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, by this you will know that you've come to know him if Christ is in you. The test of salvation, according to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, is that you know the presence of Christ with you. It's not that when you sin, you just know you've done what's wrong. When you sin, you know you've you've violated a precious Savior who, who died for that sin that we're enjoying. This brings me to the fourth question I want to ask, and that is, if you don't love and you don't obey... Why won't you? We have the God-man here, Jesus, telling his disciples, I will promise you eternity. I'll promise you heaven. I'll promise you help in this life. I'll promise you forgiveness of sins. I'll promise you grace and mercy and peace. I'll promise you a lack of anxiety and ability to deal with any trouble in your life with such altitude that you can rise above it even looking forward to that time when you close your eyes. I promise you all this. My question is, what kind of fool would say no to Christ? What kind of fool would say, no, I don't want salvation? What kind of fool would say, no, I want to do this on my own? What kind of fool would say, I don't want forgiveness, peace, mercy, grace? I mean, are are you that kind of fool? Or are you that kind of procrastinating fool? I'm going to deal with Christ someday later. Edwards is famous for saying, if you think someday, someday will never happen. 
There are two kinds of people who could respond to, to that kind of grace in Christ. The first is those who don't know Christ very much, very well, and you see the wonder of who he is and the salvation that he provides and offers, and you want to repent. And man, we have, we have lots of people who'd love to talk to you about that. What scares me most are those who show up in Matthew 7 who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. You see the intimacy, that fellowship, that disclosure that they missed? My prayer is that we have zero or few people who can sit under the teaching of a passage like this fooling themselves to think that they did something in the past and because they checked that box and walked that aisle or prayed that prayer, that they really understand Christ. If you love him, you'll obey him. And because you obey, it's proof that you love. And if you don't love and if you don't obey, please talk to us after the service. In a few minutes over to my left, There'll be uh, one of our elders and some folks over there who'd love to talk to you, pray with you, counsel with you, visit with you. We would love for you not to leave the building without the assurance of your salvation because you understand love and obedience and the nature of Christ. We're going to sing in a minute. Before we do, let me ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, your grace manifest in Christ is experienced in his disclosure to us. Disclose yourself to us through obedience and because of love. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Give us insight and the illumination of your spirit when we read your word to experience and know and respond to your permanent abiding presence. Holy Spirit, we... We are in awe that you convict and support and encourage us. And we're grateful for your presence. Lord Jesus, we are overwhelmed that you would not leave us as orphans, that you will come to us and that you make your place of a permanent abiding with us. And Father, we're overwhelmed by the thought that the creator of the universe, God the Father, makes his abode with sinners as us. Help us to taste of that, to know of that. All regulated, all conditioned by, all confined and defined by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit Mission Road Bible Church dot com.